Hi friends, welcome to Preacher, a podcast designed around the reality that many of our churches are shrinking because we haven't created a place where everyone can belong. So if you're seeing that reality in your own church, or you've experienced that and left the church, this podcast is for you. Welcome. We have a wonderfully supportive and encouraging Patreon community. Sarah, Lauren, Dave, Steve, Mark, Sheila, and Tom, I thank the world of you all, and I thank our God every time I remember you. If you are a listener who hasn't yet joined our Patreon community, now is a great time. Your support keeps this good work going, so thank you. Links are in the show notes. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 6. I am your host, Jen Hale Christie, and um, today on the podcast, my dear friend, Dr. Naomi Walters, is bringing us a word from the book of Job. Her sermon is entitled, Oh, That I Knew Where I Might Find God, um, which is a phrase that comes from the actual character Job in the book uh, that is in his name. And her sermon really wrestles with the relationship between doubt and faith. Um, because we oftentimes talk about those as if they are opposites. But in fact, there's a different way to think about these two um, and really to think about doubt as being part of faith. And that um, as we can embrace that new way of thinking about doubt and its place in faith, um, that will really free us to live with God more honestly for the sake of ourselves and for the sake of our world. And boy, don't we need that right now with all that's going on um, and just the doubts that we may be experiencing um, or um, our own instances of of really like looking around us and saying, God, where are you? Because I have some questions for you. Um, her sermon really creates the space for us to um, to do that sort of questioning and and doubting and wondering and um, yeah. So um, listen in for a fabulous sermon and then we've got a great interview afterwards. So now let's hear a word. Job 23, two through nine. Today, my complaint is bitter. God's hand is heavy despite my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find God, that I might come even to God's dwelling. I would lay my case before God and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn how God would answer me and understand what God would say to me. Would God contend with me in the greatness of God's power? No. God would give heed to me. There, an upright person could reason with God, and I should be acquitted forever by my judge. If I go forward, God is not there. Or backward, I cannot perceive God. On the left, God hides, and I cannot behold God. I turn to the right, but I cannot see God. If you are anything like me, your family may be spending a higher than average amount of time on Netflix and Hulu in these unprecedented times. If you're too cheap to pay for commercial-free Hulu like we are, then you're probably also ready to throw something at the TV whenever you hear the phrase, unprecedented times. In either case, you may have made use of a handy little feature on these streaming services called Skip Recap. Back in the olden days, when we had to wait a full week to watch the next episode of a serial television show, each episode began with a recap segment previously on Lost. Now, even though a lot of our TV is made for binge-watching, the recap segment still exists, 
just in case you happen to take some time off between episodes, you know, to sleep or go for a walk, both of which are important and healthy things to do. It can be confusing to jump into the middle of a story without at least a brief reminder of what came before. I'm imagining that it may have been a little while since you have tuned in to the story of Job. If my hunch is correct, then it might be a bit confusing to jump in with our passage today from Job 23 without at least a brief reminder of what came before. I hope you'll stay with me for a recap segment before today's episode. Previously on Job. In the very first verse of chapter 1, we learn that Job is blameless and upright, innocent, pure, and just. Also in that first verse, we learn that he fears God, which you may remember is the beginning of wisdom. Finally, still in that first verse, we are told that he shuns or turns away from evil. So in the very first sentence of this story, we have a picture of Job as the ideal follower of God, the paragon of virtue, a religious hero. When his children had parties, he would offer sacrifices on their behalf just in case they sinned secretly or silently. Job was fantastically righteous. And it's not just the narrator of the story that thinks so. When the character of the accuser, or the Satan, came before God, God described Job this way. There's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. There's that phrase again, blameless and upright. Job's righteousness was larger than life. They were even talking about it in heaven. The people were impressed, the angels were impressed, even God was impressed. But the accuser was not impressed. Of course Job is righteous, he said. Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? And so begins our rising action. Having been introduced to our main characters, super-righteous Job, the wandering accuser, and God, the central conflict of the book of Job is introduced. The accuser challenged God. Job only worships you because everything is going his way. Take away everything he has and he'll curse you to your face. So, God allowed the accuser to take away all that Job had. And that was no small amount. Seven sons and three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, very many servants. This man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Job lost all that he had, his property and his children, but still he declared, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The accuser did not give up. Well, okay, Job only worships you because he's still healthy. Stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and then he'll curse you to your face, he challenged again. So God allowed the accuser to give Job sores from the bottom of his foot to the top of his head. And the sores were so, well, sore, that Job took a shard of a broken clay pot and scraped himself 
for relief from the pain. But still he declared, as he scraped away, Will we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? This is where some supporting characters, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, find their friend Job on the ash heap, scraping himself with shards of broken pots. His ribs are poking out through his sore-covered skin. His beard is unkempt. His hair is unwashed. And the ashes cradle his broken body, which itself nurses his broken heart. And from the time they are introduced at the end of chapter 2 until our passage for today from chapter 23, Job's friends wedge themselves into all these broken cracks with some pretty awful advice. Eliphaz begins this way. If one ventures a word with you, will you be offended? This is sort of like a friend coming up to you and beginning with, I have to tell you something. Promise you won't get mad? This is not a good sign. When someone starts a conversation this way, it's a clear indication that you are not going to like what comes next. And sure enough, here is just a sampling of their attempts to comfort Job. Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. Who that was innocent ever perished? Those who sow trouble reap the same. Your children sinned against God, and God delivered them into the power of their transgression. God exacts from you less than your guilt deserves. The wicked are thrust into a net by their own feet. Is not your wickedness great? There's no end to your sins. These words, and more, from Job's friends are the primeval definition of adding insult to injury. And Job rightly responds, Miserable comforters are you all. Have windy words no limit? What provokes you that you keep on talking? For 20 chapters in 205 verses, Job's friends talk. They parrot back to him the view of the day, this proverbial wisdom, this simplistic black and white view that God punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous. So if Job is being punished, he must have done something wrong. And for 20 chapters in 310 verses, Job insists that he is innocent, that he has the right to complain about what is happening to him, that he has done nothing wrong, that it is not as simple as his friends seem to think. And having read the first two chapters of Job ourselves, we know that Job is right, that he has done nothing to deserve this. Yet, In the midst of this cycle of speeches, Job speaks some of the most confident words in all of scripture. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last God will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I will see God. But by the time we reach our text for today, By the time we get to chapter 23, Job has had enough. 
Job demands an explanation, not from his friends, but directly from God. I am about to read our passage again. And if we were gathering around this text in person, when I finished reading, I would say the word of the Lord, and I would invite you all to respond, thanks be to God. This is a common Christian worship practice that acknowledges our gratitude that God has chosen to communicate God's self to us through something as fragile as the written word. This is something I do every time I'm asked to preach, but I think it's especially important today because Job's words in chapter 23 are so harsh, so difficult to hear. Yet, as I hope will become clear, I believe they are somehow still the word of the Lord for us. They are somehow still good news. So, strange as it may be in podcast form, I'm still going to end the reading by saying the word of the Lord. And I hope you can imagine a chorus of people mumbling with you, thanks be to God. Let's hear together Job's words after the accuser has taken everything from him, and even his friends have added their own accusations to the pile. Today, my complaint is bitter. God's hand is heavy, despite my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find God, that I might come even to God's dwelling. There, I would lay my case before God and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn how God would answer me and understand what God would say to me. Would God contend with me in the greatness of God's power? No. God would give heed to me. If I go forward, God is not there. Or backward, I cannot perceive God. On the left, God hides, and I cannot behold God. I turn to the right, but I cannot see God. The word of the Lord. Job is done. He's done with platitudes, with proverbs, with pretending that what has happened to him is in any way acceptable. Job's problem is not simply that God is not giving him answers, but that God is nowhere to be found. Job is confused, frustrated, bewildered, and angry, and he is not afraid to let God know about it. This is not the, the Lord gave and the Lord's taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord, from chapter 1. Nor is it the Will we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? From chapter 2. This is more like the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of Psalm 22. Job says that he is looking for God and God is not there. He says, if I go forward, God is not there, or backward, I cannot perceive God. On the left, God hides, and I cannot behold God, and I turn to the right, but I cannot see God. And he's not looking for God so that God can comfort him. He's looking for God so he can give God a piece of his mind. He says, that I knew where I might find God, I would lay my case before God. I would learn how God would answer me. Would God contend with me? In the greatness of God's power? No, God would give heed to me. Job, 
the paragon of righteousness, the epitome of integrity, is now expressing some serious doubts. He cries out against God's silence and God's absence. And those of us who have been there too say amen, because we know the feeling. We have experienced that terrible, empty silence. We have stared loss straight in the face and wondered how God could possibly be found there. The accuser still roams to and fro about the earth, barging in and meddling with our plans, with our lives, with our families, with our friends, and with our very bodies. We are busy minding our own business, walking the dog, waiting in line at the grocery store, folding the laundry, driving home from work, reading for book club, when the unexpected breaks in. Our phone rings. There's been an accident and you need to come to the hospital. And with Job, we wonder, oh, that I knew where I might find God. A text message alert dings. Your mother and I need to talk when you get a minute. And in our fear, we wonder, oh, that I knew where I might find God. We struggle to overcome addiction, and in our desperation, we wonder, oh, that I knew where I might find God. Try as we may, we simply cannot mend our broken relationships, and in our loneliness, we wonder, oh, that I knew where I might find God. Or perhaps you've just read the news. There's a shooting in a nearby elementary school. Another black person is murdered in a modern-day lynching. A natural disaster hits an already impoverished country. We hear news of an endless war. The country names may change, but the casualty rate only rises. People valiantly strive and often fail to break out of the cycles of abuse and poverty that hold them back, and in the face of all these things, we cry out, Oh, that we knew where we might find God. When we go forward or backward, to the left or to the right, whether we're minding our own business or watching the news, God is not there. We have been on the ash heap with Job, staring loss in the face and feeling that God is not there. And in those moments of doubt, if we're honest enough to acknowledge them with those we call our friends, I am sorry to say that the church has most often responded in the tone of Job's friends, parroting proverbial wisdom. Everything happens for a reason. God just needed one more angel in heaven. Well, you know, God gives the hardest battles to the strongest soldiers. Too often, the church responds with this, I may not know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future kind of theology, just throwing it at any hard situation to see if it sticks, as if the difficulty of the present moment is in any way alleviated by the knowledge that it might be better later. 
And we respond with Job. Miserable comforters are you all. What provokes you that you keep on talking? Because the last thing you need when you cannot find God is to be told to look harder. The truth is that sometimes we feel far from God even when we are looking for God as hard as we can. The truth is that sometimes, no matter how righteous we are, no matter how deep our relationship with God is, there are still times that we experience God's silence and God's absence in the midst of profound evil. We still have our doubts. And what the book of Job tells us is that we are not alone in our doubt. And not only are we not alone in doubt, but we are not wrong to doubt. Here's one way the story could have ended. The accuser reports back to the heavenly courtroom and says, See, God, I told you so. Job doubted. I was right. He lost his faith. And God says, Yep, you're right. Time to wipe out humanity and start over. But I said I wouldn't ever use a flood again, so how about an earthquake this time? But thanks be to God, that is not at all what happens. The verdict of the divine jury at the end of the book is that Job is still upright and blameless. God says to Job's friends, My wrath is kindled against you, for you have not spoken of me what is true as my servant Job has. It is those who spoke proverbial wisdom, the simplistic black and white view that God punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous, about whom God says, you have not spoken of me what is true. Job, on the other hand, has spoken what is true. He is still considered to be blameless and upright, even in the midst of his anger and his doubt, because... Although Job's friends do an awful lot of talking about God, Job is the one who is looking for God in order to talk to God. Job is still the epitome of faith, the paragon of virtue, because his very acknowledgement of God's absence expresses a desire for God's presence. And that's why this passage is the word of the Lord, for which I give thanks to God. Because this passage tells me that doubt is not the opposite of faithfulness, but actually, doubt is a form of faithfulness. This story reminds us that the same person can at one time confidently say, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at another time doubtfully say, when I go forward or backward to the left or to the right, God is not there. And that both that confidence and that doubt are parts of faith. And that is truly good news. When we, like Job, experience that vast silence into which God seems to disappear in times of suffering, we feel anger, agony, bitterness, pain, and doubt. We want God to do something about the terrible things happening to us and in our world. And if we have the doubting faithfulness of Job, we say so. There is no rejection of God in lament. 
in expressing our doubts. The rejection comes when we detour around direct and honest acknowledgement of those doubts. The expression of doubt is an expression of faith and hope because complaining about the way things are implies the belief that there is another way that things should be. Demanding that God explain God's absence implies that we believe in a God who ought to be present. So, if you are in the midst of a season of doubt that seems longer than a Michigan winter, if you think that your doubt somehow decreases or diminishes your faith, I would like to say, as God did to the accuser, have you considered Job? Naomi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. For our listeners, Naomi is a good, good friend of mine who happens to live in Rochester, Michigan. And Naomi, I'll let you tell us about yourself, where what you do there in Rochester, kind of in your work, in your ministry, church life, whatever you want to share. Great. My Work life has me located as the chair of the Department of Theology and Ministry at Rochester University, formerly Rochester College, formerly Michigan Christian College. (laughs) Um, So I started here five years ago as a professor and then became chair a couple of years after that. So primarily I teach practical theology and ministry, which means I teach our introduction to the ministry program. I teach intro to preaching sometimes pastoral care, spiritual formation. I also teach some gen ed, um, a class called Introduction to Christian Faith, and I teach in our master's program. We have a master's of religious education, which is a located ministry graduate degree, so it keeps our students in the ministry context that they come from. So in any given semester, I have gen ed, freshmen, ministry freshmen, ministry seniors, and graduate students. So there's a pretty diverse student audience that I'm working with, which I really like, keeps it interesting. So that's what I do for my professional life. Okay, can I, before you tell us about personal life or something else, can I ask you about that MRE degree again? You said it's a located degree, which means people get to stay where they currently live. Mm-hmm. And they just travel a couple times a year? Yeah, so it's not residential. It's a cohort-based program, which means you come in with however many students you come in with and you stay together the whole time. You take the same classes in the same order. Um, and it's located versus residential, which means they stay in whatever their ministry context is and do a lot of their learning online, but every semester they have an intensive. We take them somewhere and... Mm-hmm watch how a community of faith or more than one community of faith is trying to pay attention to what God is doing locally. Yeah. And we have class in that location. Right. Cause you've gone to Durham, North Carolina, right? Mm-hmm. As one of them. With the- That's the one I teach. Okay. It's the one in Durham, North Carolina. They also go to Portland and Nashville and sometimes Dallas, sometimes Chicago. They come here for their first intensive. Mm-hmm. So they get to know us and our campus, but cool. Okay. Thanks for explaining that. I don't know if everybody knows what a located um, situation means. So yeah, okay. sure. So personally, ecclesially, what we're doing worshiping community wise is 
uh, we used to host a house church, but then our house church sort of moved out of our house and onto, we gather on campus. So it's a smaller, it's house church like, but it's not meeting in a home. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's called river of life and we meet on campus. I do most of our liturgizing, ordering our worship service. Mm -hmm. We don't usually have a sermon as part of our worship service. We gather around the text in other ways most of the time. When we do have a sermon, it's most likely to be because I have stumbled upon someone who's not allowed to preach anywhere else. Hmm. And so we invite them to preach where we are, but most of our regular members don't feel any special need to preach very often. So Mm -hmm. that's what we do for a worshiping community. What it, I'm intrigued by this idea of gathering around the text in different ways. What, what's maybe like one or two forms that that's taken? Most often, we the word portion of our service where the sermon would go looks uh-huh. like dwelling in the word. So okay. um, it's a practice that involves listening to the voice of the spirit in the text and in your neighbor. So a text is read and then you're invited to pay attention to where you get stuck or what grabs your attention or what seems to be if there's a word or phrase jumping out at you there's um, some time for silence after the text is read so you can attend to that see what the spirit might have to say in where your attention was drawn Mm -hmm. and then you find a partner and you share with each other what stood out to you and then we come back as a whole group and you're invited to share what your partner heard Mm -hmm. with the group if you are comfortable and compelled so most of the time we do that which comes out of our conviction that the spirit speaks in people and not just in the written word Mm -hmm. and our conviction that uh, the spirit is often a source of surprise. So hearing where you get stuck or what grabs your attention is sort of an open door, an open window for the spirit to get in. And so we want to pay attention to where that's happening. Um, So it's sort of a space creating practice. It it leaves us room to have some silence and to actually listen to a text and to our neighbor and So most of the time we do that. Sometimes, like right now in the middle of a pandemic, when you can't really be six feet away, uh, can't be less than six feet away from someone who's not in your household, that makes the partner part of dwelling in the word a little tricky. So we've been doing a little bit of Lectio Divina, which is more of a individual contemplative sort of four-phase way of hearing a text but we still invite people to share with the whole group what Mm -hmm. they heard so we think that piece is important um what else sometimes we have just had some folks who play instruments some of our attenders members who play instruments have asked to just play music behind scripture readings. So we'll do um, antiphonal readings of songs where you like read a few verses and then sing the same chorus 
um, like a Taze sort of repetitive chorus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But we can't sing right now either. Yeah. Because of the pandemic. So we're working to be creative. Are you guys still meeting in person then? We came back in person maybe two months ago. So we're meeting outside while the weather's nice. We're meeting outside six feet apart. Everybody brings a camp chair. (laughs) They get the order of worship ahead of time Uh and they bring their own communion elements. So nobody has to touch anything that didn't come with them Uh unless they want to take a egg shaker or something that I disinfect in between. Um, so we don't sing, so we're listening to music. So the egg shaker, the instruments are sort of a way that we can still create music together, uh-huh. even though we're not singing. Huh. We just learned the American Sign Language for the doxology, which we sing every time at the end of our time around the table. So we can't sing right now. So we're listening to the doxology, but we learned the American Sign Language so we could sing with our hands instead of oh, our cool. mouths. Now, how does all of this work with kids? Because I know you have two. I don't know if anybody else in your group does. Yeah, there are more than just my kids there. My kids are probably the most regular tiny people present. But (laughs) um, yeah, we don't have separate children's programming. So the kids are present in the gathered worship for the whole of it. Mm -hmm. My kids are seven and five, just in terms of where they are developmentally. So the kids, our boys and the other kids present, check in and participate when and where they want to. Often they will do some reading aloud of scripture. They share communion. They'll do some dance wiggling and instrument playing during the songs. The rest of the time, we try to keep them respectfully non-distracting, but... Mm -hmm. Even the word distracting gives me pause because the kingdom of God isn't only for folks with long attention spans who are good at being silent and still. So our community as a whole tends to see child activity less as a distraction and more as an invitation to see God in our neighbor, in this case, the children. And since there's not usually a sermon, there isn't really a long period of time where silence and stillness would be important anyway. Mm-hmm. So overall, the kids tend to do pretty well because they're engaging when and where they want to and can, and they're not held to age-inappropriate behavioral standards Yeah. otherwise. Yeah. Um, in non-pandemic times, there were a lot of ways that we invited children to be engaged. We had a child story, but that sort of involves gathering around the reader, which isn't possible with physical distancing between households. We had coloring pages that matched the week's lectionary texts. Mm-hmm. Those come from illustratedministry.com. We're a big fan of them. But that requires shared crayons and colored pencils and That's hard to disinfect. Um, But the hardest thing for the kids about pandemic worship is that we're not singing, which is usually their favorite part. I think for so many of us, that's the biggest loss, right? Obviously being together is really important, but being there's just something about being able to sing together, Mm -hmm. especially for those of us who come from a tradition of acapella worship where like, it's so, I don't know, there's something really special about joining and harmonizing our voices together. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we most often worship a cappella. So we've had more instrumental music since the pandemic started because it's mm-hmm. 
non germ scattering way of <laughs> creating music. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not forever, but it is, it's sad. Something yeah. to lament. Yeah. Well, it's cool though that you guys have been, you know, the American Sign Language and, you know, any instruments as a way to like participate and, and still like, I don't know, participate in song together. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. Creative. Yeah. We had bubbles last week, brought our <laughs> bubble machine from home. I just thought we needed a little bit more joy. <laughs> nice. Okay. So let's talk about the sermon. Now yeah. that we've gotten the good hopeful stuff out of the way, we can talk about sad, sad Job. <laughs> um, I, I love the sermon. I love how you um, said very clearly multiple times that doubt is part of faithfulness. Um, and that like you, you reiterated that line. I, I didn't write it down and I didn't look it up, but you said it multiple times. Um, what Job said, Oh, Oh, that I could find God. Like, you know, I'm looking to my right. I'm looking to my left and, and it's not looking to God for comfort, but looking to God to say like, Hey, how come you didn't, how, why did you let this happen? Or how come you're not intervening? Like it's mm -hmm. a, it's a, I don't know, accusatory. Is that too strong mm -hmm. of a word? Like it's a, I'm, I'm looking for God because God has some, some answering uh, yeah. that God needs to do. Yeah. Um, and I just think there's so much there that we can connect with. Um, I'm wondering uh, where, where you're seeing this right now. Like, obviously there's a lot going on in our country a lot going on in our country and there's, there's pandemic. Are those, are those the places that you're primarily seeing these opportunities for us to express those, those doubts and ask God those hard questions? Are there other, other places where this is showing up for you? Yeah. I mean, I think we could talk about either a pandemic or the sort of social justice movement that were is being brought back to the forefront of our attention. Yeah. For those of us who are white and forget about it. Um, either of those would be parallel circumstances, right? Where you're like, I don't, you're not intervening. I don't, it seems like you're not present. And I was thinking especially about how this section of Job feels a little different than a lament Psalm. So if you're taking your Hebrew Bible class, they'll tell you that most lament songs still end with an expression of faith mm -hmm. but or I will trust, trust. In you. Yeah. but I will trust. And, um, and like that somehow makes it more palatable that like they can say what they want to say throughout the song, as long as at the end it says, but I'll trust in you. Mm -hmm. um, and that seems to be sort of like theological tone policing where like, mm. you can say whatever you want, as long as it's clear at the end that you're not actually mad. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot to be angry about and there's a lot to truly lament without needing to clean it up yeah. um, and feeling like either you can't lament at all or you can lament as long as it ends with, but I know it's not that bad and God's got this. Yeah. That's not, that's not where most of us honestly find ourselves and that's a tough standard to hold people to yeah and it's not the standard that god holds job to 
Yeah. Um, I, I really appreciated that you specifically called out those trite, the, uh, I don't want to call them trite because I do think people are typically well-intentioned when they say, oh, God needed another angel or all those things that people say, like you called them all out and said, rubbish. (laughs) These are not things. These are the things that Job's friends say to him too. And these are not the things we should say to our friends when they're going through something hard. And I, I don't know, like, um, what do we say? Mm -hmm. I mean, sitting in silence with somebody is, is important, but like, we can't even be with people right now. Mm-hmm. We can't even sit with them in their grief. Like, do we just call them and sit in silence on the phone? You know, like, mm-hmm. what do we do? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So in non-pandemic times, I, like sitting in silence together is great. There's that scene from Lars and the Real Girl while mm-hmm. they're waiting for the doll to die. Uh, <laughs> when all these sweet little old ladies are just sitting in the living room with him knitting. Yeah. And um, one of them says something like, this is what we do. When disaster hits, we come and we sit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, what's the physically distanced version of sitting? Um, I don't know about that. But I do, I think in terms of what we say, that was one of your questions. Mm-hmm. For some reason, we have a really hard time just saying, I'm sorry, that's awful. Yeah. Like we, we're, we're trained to say, uh, it's awful, but yeah, or it's awful at least. Yeah. We have a hard time just leaving it. And that's the same thing as like, but I will trust in you. Yeah. That that person might get there on their own. I'm not interested in policing how the, the other person processes what's happening to them, but that um, it's not my place to offer you silver lining. Yeah. Unless you ask for it. So yeah. sometimes people say like, is there some good in this that I'm not seeing? Mm. Well, now that's a spot. <laughs> There's something we could work with there. Maybe. Um, maybe treading very carefully. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You said um, trite as a word we don't want to use to describe it. And I think that's helpful. I, the word that I use in the sermon is I call it proverbial wisdom. Oh yeah. And here's where that gets tricky is like the word proverbial comes from Proverbs, which is the book right next to this one. And there's stuff like this in there. Right. So I am sort of thinking you could think about Job 23 in its context in the book of Job, but you could also think about Job in its context in sort of like Hebrew wisdom literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and these things are in tension with each other. Proverbs is like, you follow the Lord, everything's going to work out. And yeah. then Job, no, 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 no. Uh, and so um, I, those things are in tension with each other Yeah. in the text. Um, so there's a little bit of playfulness there in me calling it proverbial wisdom. Mm-hmm. Is it? Things like that are in there, but they seem to come from the sufferer themselves and not from an outsider. So like when Joseph says what you meant for harm, Mm -hmm. God used for good, that's his own interpretation. It's not any of his brothers saying, I know it all worked out. Like, look, (laughs) right. Right. That's not, no one's projecting that on him. That's his own self-interpretation of this, the situation. Yeah. I do think ending things in question marks 
is probably more helpful than ending them in periods. So mm-hmm. asking, is there anywhere that you're seeing God in this mm-hmm. is different than providing meaning for the person. Yeah. And the answer might be no. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Yeah. The answer might be, I, you tell me where God is because I'm looking for God. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Okay. Well, I know we're like way out of time, but um, is there a, a word for church leaders, ministers, elders, pastors, for those who are listening to this? Um, what do you wish they knew? You as someone who is your your whole your whole work life right now is training up people who are planning to go into ministry, right? Mo- I mean, mostly. You got the gen ed mm-hmm. students there too, but you're training a lot of ministry majors. So, and they're about to head off into churches. So maybe the question isn't specifically for church leaders, but like maybe it's church, you know, congregations. Like, what do you, what do you wish we knew in churches? I think I wish we knew how to open up space instead of closing it down. Mm. So you could take that a lot of ways when someone is sharing something hard. We just want to like shut it down, like keep the feelings smushed down and we don't want to leave loose ends loose. We don't want to leave ambiguity ambiguous. Mm-hmm. So specifically as it relates to Job and doubt and faith, I wish we would leave things open, but you could take it more broadly than that too. Just we don't have to know all the things and we don't have to answer all the questions. The kingdom of God is the kind of place where there's room to, to leave things, to let things be unknown, to have some silence and not just words, to have question marks and not just sentences. Yeah. And that's pretty counter personality for me. I actually really like to know things and to have <laughs> the wisest opinion on the thing. I just want to help. So I really want to give people like the piece of advice that's going to make them the well-crafted text that's going to make them feel better. Yeah. Um, so I have to work hard to leave space. And I think that that is hard work that's worth doing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing this, this good word for us, um, a word that we need right now when we look around us either to the news or to, I mean, good grief here in Portland, what's going on in the streets night after night. Like it's, (laughs) there, there are a lot of reasons for those of us who believe that God exists to look around and say, well, then where are you? Cause I got some questions for you. Um, And to, to know that that is that, the doubts that we experience are part of our faith. Um, yeah. So anyway, thank you. And thank you for, for being so um, specific and clear um, about all that for us um, and helping, helping to create that space for us and those openings um, so that we can proceed with our question marks um, and feel encouraged to, to ask those questions rather than just tidying everything up with neat periods at the end. Anytime. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 
All right. Thanks, Naomi. If today you find yourself on the outside without a seat at the table or a voice in the conversation, may you lean into the truth that you're always welcome in God's community. If you are one who wears the name minister, pastor, elder, shepherd, or are otherwise known as a faith leader, may you extend God's yes to those you might have said no to in the past. May you be emboldened and encouraged to honor the space that God has already created for all. Let's build bigger tables together. If something in you was stirred today, reach out. Hearing from you really does help to shape the future of this podcast. You'll have the greatest impact and opportunities for engagement by joining our Patreon community by clicking that Become a Patron button on our page, patreon.com slash Christie. And I would love for you to connect with me on Instagram or LinkedIn or Facebook at Christie. Lastly, you would really help others to connect with this work if you would subscribe and rate and review us on iTunes. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening and I will catch you next time.